All right, good morning. Here we go. We are going to finish Corinthians today. So grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to wrap this one up. Hope you've had a great week. Uh, it's been really nice weather here in Arizona, so if you're here, I hope you've been out enjoying it. Usually it doesn't break until the end of October, but we've kind of had a had some great weather. But uh, anyway, we're going to go into this. We're continuing to work through 2 Corinthians. We, uh, we will obviously continue to teach the Word. So we're going to move on from here kind of into what we believe as a church, and you'll be able to kind of understand that into the next two or three weeks as we work through that. Uh, and then we're going to shift into a series before Christmas and kind of talk through um, emotional struggles. We'll, we'll come. I'll, I'll explain all that as we get closer, but that's just a heads up on what's next. Not done here yet, though, so grab your Bible. We're going to go here. Uh, again, this is not church. This is just me preaching the Word, uh, unpacking the text, and then tonight we're going to come hang out and talk about it, and we would love to tell you where we are and for you to come hang out with us, so hit us up. Email us. You can find uh, find us, obviously, online because you're watching this somewhere online. Uh, and uh, there's email, there's uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. It's all up there. Obviously, YouTube, anything. Find us, hit us up, and we'll tell you how to come hang out with us. We're in Tempe, Arizona. I'd love to spend time with you. Church happens when we gather uh, tonight. So hope you come be part of that and share what you think. Anyway, turn to the Word. We are going to finish up last time. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 has been our theme through this whole thing which says, for I've decided to know nothing uh, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we've talked about a cross-shaped life for weeks and weeks and weeks now. And uh, this last one is going to be testing the truth. Okay, so testing the truth. Not to determine if the truth is true. Sounds funny to say. But to determine if you are in it. Are you in the truth? And is the truth in you? Ultimately, the truth in a biblical worldview is Jesus. Okay? So, are you in Jesus and is Jesus in you? And that's kind of the test that we're going to look at today. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to read verse 5. Paul wrote, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or you not realize this is this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed... You failed to meet the test. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is so awesome. Thank you for the privilege of teaching it. Thank you for this letter from Paul in second, that we call Second Corinthians and the privilege of having uh, that now so many thousand years later and uh, being able to know it to be your word and hear you speak clearly through it. I pray, God, as always, it remains your word and never mind because it is your word. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I used Stranger Things last week, if you saw that, as an opening illustration sci-fi TV show. So keeping in with the Halloween <laughs> time of year, I'll use The Thing, a movie, this week. Now I'll go on and warn you, if you haven't seen this one, I strongly caution you with it because it's pretty graphic and gory. But um, <laughs> you don't have to see it to understand where I'm going with the illustration. Because in the movie, you have this group of researchers that are trapped. Uh, well, they're in Antarctica doing research, and they find themselves trapped with this alien alone in Antarctica in their remote research area. And this alien perfectly mimics people because each of its blood cells is uh, a living, independent thing, and those cells can will kill and reproduce a cell that looks just like the original. So, 
these people find themselves in a tough situation because they're surrounded by everybody and everybody looks the same and even talks the same and acts the same, but they're not all the same. Some, some or at least one is an alien in this scenario. And uh, so they discover this, they come up with this, uh, this test. They've, they've realized that this alien hates heat. And so they've come up with this test where they take blood from everybody and they put it in a Petri dish and then they take a wire that's been heated on a blowtorch and they stick it into the blood to see what, what will happen. And when they hit the blood that has the alien, that comes from the person who's actually an alien, the, the blood jumps out of the dish like a spider and it's wild and it's crazy. So, but in this Corinthian case, the test that's being offered or being told that they need to take, it's not to determine who around them is an alien per se. It's not even to determine who around them is not who they claim to be. It's to determine for themselves if they are who they claim to be. So there's plenty of people that say, you know, hey, I believe in God. But the first question is, do they really know who God is, number one? And then there's many people who claim to follow Jesus up until it costs. Just saying. And for the record, it always costs. Following Jesus always costs. At the very least, it costs the sin that you want to keep holding on to. But Jesus wrote, or Jesus said that it, it would cost your whole life, for the record. So Paul closes his letter here, and, and he has now pretty much finished arguing about his own um, test. He's proven true to his own test here. with, And now he's offering a challenge, a test for the Corinthians as well, to determine if their faith is in line with their deeds, basically. And it's a challenge for us today. Move these glasses before I fool with them too. A challenge for us today, though, for those of us who claim to follow Christ anyway, to test the genuineness of our faith and examine the expression of our heart. All right? So, pulling it apart with uh, four pieces here. Test yourself. These are all real good practical things. Test yourself. Trust those who are true. Respond humbly. And remember your God. Okay? So, trust yourself. Trust those, or excuse me, test yourself. Trust those who are true. Respond humbly and remember your God. Great way that Paul finishes this. Let's jump in there. Verse 5. Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So examine and test here are interchangeable words. They're pretty much the same word. To, to fail to meet it means to be disqualified. It means to be disgenuine, not, not genuine, that you are a phony. You're not who you appear to be or claim to be or act like you are. You know, in high school, I was a terrible student. Uh, but prior, prior, I graduated on time, but I wasn't a good student. But prior to that, in junior high and the grade school years before that, before rebellion, drugs, and all that got me in high school. In those previous years, I was pretty much a straight-A kid. Uh, I did homework, I studied, but tests still made me panic. Maybe you're one of those people. And I used to get so frustrated with teachers who made us take tests. Because I'm like, I did all the classwork, I did all the homework, I've done everything you said, why do I have to take a test too on top of that? You know, you know what I've done. But but what I didn't realize until later is that tests aren't for the teacher because they already know where you are. They know. The test is for you to know where you are. Right? And that's what Paul's challenging the Corinthians to do 
here, the Corinthian church, to evaluate themselves, to see where they are. Does their work uh, at church and at home, does it reflect what they claim? Does it reflect who they claim to know? You know, that's what he's saying. Examine and test here are also present active imperative verbs. What that means is it's a command to be actively doing it presently. It's a command to be actively doing it presently. So when is the present? It's always right now. The present is always right now. So this is like saying be in a state of testing or or at least saying it's something you should be doing regularly at the very least here. Do you ever do this? Do you ever do this? Test, allow your faith to be tested? I know it may sound scary or like doubt or even like lack of faith. You know, if I test my faith, isn't that lack of faith? What about testing God? In fact, it, it can be very healthy. He's not saying test God. He's saying test your faith. It can be very healthy to do this. Warren Wearsby wrote this. Uh, he quoted Socrates. He said, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And then he commented and said, a true Christian experience will bear or endure examination or testing. In other words, you're not, if, you're, if you're true, you're not going to hurt yourself by testing it. It's not going to happen. It is a question here, though, that we should all be asking. It is. That is, are you genuine? Are you the real thing? Or are you lying to others? Lying to yourself? We should all be asking this. No, not doubting our salvation, but evaluating how we live. It's something else. We claim that we're followers of Christ, so then we should desire to live that way. It's that simple. David said it this way in Psalm 139, verse 23. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He also wrote in Psalm 26, verse 2, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind for your steadfast love or grace is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Bold of David, but but you know what? Paul here told the Corinthians to examine and test themselves. Maybe along the heart of David here, but not asking God to test them. He said, you test yourselves. God's definitely going to test us. That's going to come. No doubt about that. But Paul wants them to take the initiative to determine for themselves who they are, where they are. And really, you know, honestly, you ask yourself, would you rather wait on God, uh, or rather wait on God and see uh, what he shows you? You're going to let him test you and see what he shows you? Or would you rather test yourself first so that you'll be prepared for his test when it does come? Because it will come. Uh, another note here, examine yourselves. It's It's a plural word for a collective whole. It's not just... One person should examine oneself, although there's truth there. It's not saying, you know, hey, Dave, you examine yourself, period. It's more like y'all examine your church. Good southern language for you. <laughs> y'all examine your church, the people, you, not the building. Y'all examine your church over there. Also, pay attention to what Paul is being or, or what Paul is saying is being tested and determined here. Look what he's saying. That Christ is in them. Not that, A, they feed the poor, they feed the hungry, they clothe the poor, they do. He's not saying all that. He's saying the test here is to determine, is Christ in you? Because that's the claim, is he? But he, 
He's talking to a church again, remember? He's talking to a church. So he's almost saying it rhetorically here, saying like, well, he does say, do you not realize that Christ is in you? He said, don't you realize Christ is in you? And it's almost a, a second afterthought where he's saying, you know, un unless you fail the test, and if you fail the test, then he looks like a fool, right? Don't you recognize who you are? Paul's language makes clear that it's less about salvation here and more about perception, their own and that of others, who they recognize themselves to be and who others recognize themselves to be. Do they know their own identity? Do others recognize their identity and their actions? Again, unless they actually failed the test. Verse, or excuse me, Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus put it this way. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Or, now, he's talking about false prophets here, but we can take the same test and apply it to a church. Okay, so as a church, you'll recognize it by its fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorns or thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased tree bears bad fruit a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit what they consistently produce what jesus is saying here will identify who they are inside regardless of what they look like or who they appear to be on the outside you want to test a church here you go Verse 21, skipping on down, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There is a picture here that links salvation to action. Not saying you got to get the order right. It's not saying action grants salvation. It's saying that action should reflect that salvation has occurred. So the question he's saying here is, do you say God is my co-pilot or God is my pilot? Do you say, God is my homie, or God is my savior? Do you say, you have faith in God, man, or I depend completely on Jesus as my Lord and Savior, as my God? Do you claim Jesus as Lord, or do you claim Jesus as your Lord? Big difference. And the point Paul is coming to, though, is if you do all say do say all of that, let's put it to the test. For instance, could others verify that? This one's huge. Think about this a minute. How would someone else answer those same questions about you? Imagine two different people are having a conversation. You're not even there. Your name comes up. How would one of them verify or speak of you? Would they use that kind of language? Would they talk about you that way? Test yourself. And then trust those who are true, he says. Look at verse 6. I hope you'll find out that we've not failed the test, Paul summoned himself and his others. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Still kind of a funny bit of language here. Basically, can Paul be trusted, first of all? Well, he hopes to realize he's passed all their testing here. He's passed it, and he is true, and he's trustworthy because of that, all right? But I love that Paul focus, his focus here remains on them. He, he's focusing back towards them. He's speaking like a father here in the closing of this letter, that even if he appears to have failed his desire, like if it's, even if you still claim to, 
you, you're, you, by all means, you're going to reject everything. You're still going to claim to believe that he's failed. His desire is less now about proving himself and more about them doing the right thing. Them doing right. First Corinthians 4, verse 15, in the first letter here that we have that he wrote, he said, For though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I mean, he's the one who brought it to him. And like a father, Paul says, he prays for them. Love verse 7 of, of 2 Corinthians 13, but we pray to God. He says he prays to God for them that they may do right and no wrong. What a simple and powerful prayer here. A lot of people have attempted to you know, mine down to all the different meanings he's got in saying do right and do wrong. But I don't think it's that complicated. I think it's simple. I think it means exactly what it says. Doing right or wrong, though, is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. It requires making a choice beforehand. Choosing to do right or to do wrong. And choosing is an expression of what's already in your heart. Or what you're defying in your heart. In order, like if, if you've got the right in your heart, but you do the wrong anyway, you're defying the right. But unlike those that he was talking about in the end of chapter 12 there, the ones that were unrepentant and practicing sin, if your heart is true, sin can't live. Sin can't linger. Sin can't last. It can't go on. If your heart is true, this little fatherly prayer that he's saying here to do right and not wrong, it's bigger than it sounds, man. Go, Paul. And remember, not about whose deeds are right so that they are born again, that they do right so that they can be born again. That's not what he's saying. It's about who does right because they are born again. So how do you know if you pass the test? Well, look at what he says here because he said he has, verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. I like to look at this through the lens of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, what? The truth and the life in John fourteen six. Jesus also said in John 18, standing before Pilate in verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You know what I'm saying? He, he, he Look back at verse 8 then and plug in Jesus for the truth. For we cannot do anything against Jesus, but only G, only for Jesus. We cannot do anything against Jesus, but only for Jesus. Your behavior is not always a true test, but the desire of your heart is. You understand what I'm saying? Your behavior is not always a true test, but the desire of your heart is. We may sin, but the desire of our heart is always to look like Jesus who is within us. Basically, got this way. If the true desire of your heart is refusing the things of Christ, his word, his truth, then you're failing the test and you're most likely not in the faith. Just outright saying it. Even if you do good deeds, even if the world loves you, even if you're all into philanthropy, even if you have very few sinful deeds that you do, you're a great person by everybody's standards, if your heart is refusing the specific things of Christ, Greatest of all, his word, the truth. You're failing the test, you're not in the faith. But if you do struggle with sin, listen to me, if you do struggle with sin, you're already headed towards passing the test. Why? Because you struggle with it. Because you struggle with it. Because you want it to, you want to be free of it. And 
though you may fail at times, you seek a pure heart, a heart that honors Christ. That's what you want. That's saying something in you is different. Sometimes we have a hard time knowing who we can trust, to be honest with you. Sometimes we have a hard time, whether it's a pastor or a girlfriend you know, or a boyfriend or whatever. We have a hard time knowing. And here's a fantastic test to see if they're true, whether it be girlfriend, all the way to pastor, parents, whoever. You want to know if it's somebody you can trust. Here's a great way to test. Does their life reflect verse 8? Plug it with Christ or leave it just like it is, the truth. Could you say they cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth? Great test to see if somebody's true. Verse 9, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your uh, restoration, the same word means completion. It means perfection. It's the idea of maturity is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So Paul's prayer here is for restoration, for perfection, for completion, that they are fully mature. That's what he's praying. They're fully mature, that they're no longer struggling with sin, that they're not being led astray by super apostles, that they're not in confusion over who to follow. They're not being tempted by the culture that's all around them, calling them to do all kinds of crazy things. Paul's response here is so humble, too. He's happy to remain weak, he said, in support of them being strong. He's happy to remain weak if they be recognized as a healthy church. Man, that's saying a lot. And he's hoping that this letter is going to allow them to correct whatever they need to before his visit so that his visit can be full of joy and not have any uncomfortable discipline moments. And Paul humbly inserts, look, he just slipped it in there, but he humbly inserts that his authority is given by God. But he notes it's for the purpose of building up, not tearing down. The authority he has, he wants that to continue to be something that helps people grow, that they can, that he can be a, a, a stage builder to help them rise and, uh, and not tear down, not condemn, not break people, that... That's what he helps to do when he shows up is keep building. So what do they do with this? Well, you know, what do we do with it? Well, a couple of things here really quick. Respond humbly. That's first of all, test yourself, trust those who are true and respond humbly. Look what he says in verse 11. Finally, brothers, that means believers. So he's been talking to and about believers here. Finally, brothers, believers, rejoice, period. What if it stopped right there? Come back to that. Aim for restoration. That's the same word, completion, perfection, same thing. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Not Catholic saints here. This would be the truth of the word. There's no elevated sainthood. Paul is referring to believers as a whole as saints. Okay? So, but he tells them to rejoice right out of the gun. Be glad. Be glad. <laughs> but that would be fine, except in the context here. It, first of all, it's a choice. It's a decision. And, and a humble heart will always understand this choice and decision to be glad. But why Paul would place this statement here seems funny. If you go back and read it straight through, he just finished threatening them pretty heavily. You know? He just kind of bounced off of him about sin here, man. That's a funny way to follow that up. 
He doesn't even list what they should rejoice about. He doesn't say, well, you know what, you, you know, I know I, I got after you on this and this and this, but you know what, rejoice because of blank. He didn't say that. He just says rejoice. Just be glad. Just be glad. Uh, there's a great side note to eternal security here, by the way, that to be able to be called out on sin and then at the same time tell the person rejoice. He doesn't say to them, okay, I'm going to give you uh, uh, 50 Hail Marys, 20 Our Fathers. I'm not taking any shots. I'm just saying. And then you're going to be good. doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know what, I know you got all these sins, but you know, you got to do, you got to starve yourself for X amount of days. You got to get some whips and beat yourself for a while, and then you're going to be, he didn't do any of that. In fact, he, the one thing he says right out of the gun is rejoice. Man, rejoice. And if you need to know why he would say that to somebody who's a sinner, it's the last verse, and we'll get there in just a second. So he gives five parting commands here or challenges. And you want to know if you're passing the test? Maybe you're curious. Am I passing the test? Where am I on that? Well, how does your heart react to these? Not how are you doing necessarily. How does your heart react to these things that he's mentioning here? Are you in agreement or are you frustrated with the thought of, of, of what this would look like for you practically? First of all, he says aim for completion, restoration. Aim for it. Aim for it means... It's funny, in our language it sounds a little different than what's meant here. Aim, it means to be made or become ready, suitable, equipped in advance for a particular purpose or use. In other words, that you are prepared for something, for restoration. So if it's restoration in this case, aim for doesn't mean like point in that direction. It means to make yourself or to become in a state of preparedness for that to be your reality. So it's a passive imperative. What that means is it's a command to allow something to happen to you. For instance, King James translates it this way, become, not aim, but become. So become restored, become complete, become perfect. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's a work of God in our lives. Become is something that's happening to you. It requires us to do one thing, and that's be submissive, to be submissive to him and allow for it. It's a lifelong process, and we call it sanctification. Big theological word. It's a lifelong process of allowing God to, by our obedience to him, we allow God to conform us to the image of his son, to make us look more like Christ. And that's, Basically, what it means to aim at restoration, that's how that works. We are allowing Christ to conform us to the image of his son. And when we're all conformed to the image of his son, we are in perfection. We are complete. Also, again, note that if they were to aim for perfection, then they clearly were not perfect yet. Just saying, he still called them he still called them brothers, their family. But if he's telling them to aim for perfection, they're obviously not there yet. Perfect behavior doesn't determine whether someone is a true believer. Perfect behavior does not determine whether someone is a true believer. If you look at somebody's tree and it's not filled with perfect fruit, don't automatically assume that means it's a bad tree. It's not necessarily the case. Their identity comes first. Their identity in Christ, their desire to be found in him, to be seen in him, and him to be seen in them. That, that's, the, that's the picture. Is that where their heart is? 
Comfort one another, he says. Obvious what that means. But the question here is if we choose to do that. That's an imperative too. That's a command to do. But do we choose to do that? Well, you might say, sure I do. Well, who do you do it with? Because that's the thing. We define the one another. We're cool with the comfort, but we define the one another. You know what? Yeah, man, I'm going to I'm gonna comfort the people I care about, but those people who get on my last nerves, I hate it for you. You had it coming. It's about time that it caught up with you. You know what I'm saying? That That's the way we get. I'm just saying we're supposed to comfort one another, the whole church. Romans 12, verse 15, Paul wrote there, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be haughty. But associate with the lowly. Choose to be with them. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's a beautiful picture of comforting one another and really this whole same thing he's saying. He says, agree with one another. Back in Second Corinthians 13, agree with one another. Do it. Man, that's a heavy one. Do it. And you say, why is that a big deal? Well, what if the other person's wrong? One of the most challenging things written in the Bible, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he wrote it in the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this. He's talking about uh, believers suing believers in secular courtrooms rather than working out their differences. And he says this in verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Watch this one now. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I wish I could twist that to make it sound more pleasant, but that's what he's saying. And this is God's word through Paul's mouth. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He says, live in peace. That's a lifestyle. That, that, that's the idea. I would rather have peace with my brother. I would rather be a comfort to my brother. I would rather aim for perfection, for maturity in our church to the extent that I will be wrong. God knows God knows the truth. It's all right. Don't you think he's big enough to handle it for you? Whatever comes from that, I will be defrauded. And finally, Paul promises a reward for this aiming, for comforting, for agreeing, for living in peace, and that's God's presence. Look what he says. God is there among them. God is always present. He's everywhere. And as a church, he is within them already. That's definitely true, individually and corporately. But to say that God will be with them is saying that he will act alongside of them, that he will walk with them, that his love and peace will surround them. Man, is that a big enough reward for you, or you need a cash payout? You need mansions and cars, or is that a big enough reward for you? For some, that's mind-blowing to think that the God of all creation would be with you especially if you still recognize that you struggle with sin. Just saying. He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. How about that one, man? <laughs> the kisses, you know. I heard all kinds of jokes about that growing up, but it's not that kind of kiss. Not that kind of kiss. It's nothing weird about it. It's just a kiss. It's like many countries today 
uh, a lot of European countries, a lot of countries, not just there, all over the place, who greet each other with the whole kiss on each side of the cheek. It's That's all he's talking about. The point of putting the word holy on it is to say that the person giving it should be living a holy life. And the person receiving it should be living a holy life. As you greet each other, there should be a sense of holiness already between you in the way that you're living. That's living in peace. So test yourself. Trust those who are true. Respond humbly. And lastly, really quick, remember your God. Man, this is an awesome way to end. What a great sentence this is, this last sentence he writes. Verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Did you catch that? All of the Trinity is noted here. Not Jesus or God. It's and. And. It's not or. It's and. They're all three linked together. They're all present. They're all linked together. To have one is to have them equal, they're all equaled out. There's not one that says, well, first this one, second this one, third. They're all there. No one is elevated above the other, but each is noted here with unique purposes, at least in his language here. The grace, love, and fellowship is different, but Jesus, God, and the Spirit, Holy Spirit are the same. Trinity, that's what we use here. Yes, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but that doesn't mean anything. That's just a word that we're using to express something that is, Throughout the entire Bible, the idea that one person is expressed in three, but always remaining one. I can't put my brain around that. I'm not even going to try to come up with some creative way to make it somewhat make sense. It's okay with me that it doesn't, because he created everything, and if he created everything that exists, it's okay that he's a little bit outside of my grasp, okay? It's okay. I can trust that in some way he is one God expressed in three persons. Why? Because his word is full of it. And I don't have time to go through that because it is from cover to cover. But just to give you a couple of ideas, Exodus chapter 20, I'm not quoting the verse, reading the verses here, but in Exodus chapter 20, the very first commandment that he gives is that I shall have no other God before me. Before me doesn't mean in order, number one, number two, number three. Before me means in my face. Have no other gods in my presence. So whoever the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, whoever that God is, he is only one. There are no others in his presence. Some say, well, Christians are you know, polytheistic. We believe in multiple gods. No, we don't. No, we don't. If you are a true Christian, if you pass this test and you truly know Christ, that's not true. You believe in one God. Our God is one. There is only one, and we have no other gods before him. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. But then you have countless encounters throughout Scripture where God appears to be talking to himself. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us go down and see what they are doing. There's all kinds of stuff. Matthew 28, 19, if we come to the New Testament, is a powerful one. Matthew 28, 19 says... Go baptize, go, Jesus said, go baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Name is singular. Not in the names of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the singular name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all together. Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I, I could go on and on. It's, it's impossible to wrap your brain around, but it's there. And Paul doesn't say Father here, by the way, anyway. He says God. 
He doesn't say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says Jesus Messiah. That's what Christ means. Jesus Messiah, God, and Holy Spirit. But because we know this idea of Trinity, we see this thread of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how we understand it. But Paul is saying God. So all are interchangeable. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. They're all interchangeable. Uh, But it's a great picture of this Trinity because they are all interchangeable. They're all the same one, yet they're doing, he's noting them with different attributes or different characteristics or different things right here. Full of grace, defined by love. God is love, we would say, right? Or his word says. And then a fellowship within himself. Think about that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a fellowship there. A father who loves a son, a son who loves a father, a Holy Spirit who is love, a Holy Spirit who loves the son. We could go all the way around. There's, there's a fellowship there. I love, again, I'll go back to Warren Wiersbe. He said this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it takes us back to Bethlehem where he became poor for us. The love of God, it takes us to Calvary where God the Father gave his son. And the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit, it takes us to Pentecost, where the Spirit baptized all the believers into the body of Christ. How fitting this benediction was for the divided, unspiritual church in Corinth. Many churches need this benediction today. Amen to that. Paul calls for the Corinthians to be found in that relationship. And also that God, in all three persons here, with grace, love, and Fellowship would be found in them. Man, to be able to have that would have been beautiful. Guess what? In Christ, as a believer today, that is your, you have access to that. That is your reality. That is your identity. And that's the test. Examine yourselves to see if verse 14 is your reality. Is that your reality? Is he with you? Is he in you? And are you characterized by his presence? Are you characterized by grace? Are you characterized by love? Are you characterized by fellowship and all of that with Jesus Christ, with the Lord, with God? So how do we respond? Well, first I would say adopt a lifestyle that allows for your faith to be tested to be true. Adopt that kind of lifestyle. Not saying persecution and challenges, but again, consider what other people would say about you. Would they say that you look like Jesus? Adopt a lifestyle where you can ask people. Do I look like, you know, what what would they say you look like Jesus? And then it's super practical. Aim for restoration. Completion, perfection, aim for it. Uh, Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. Paul says it's easy. And then rejoice. Choose to rejoice. Why? Because you know the God of verse 14. Um, and then if you don't, let me just say, I love the beauty of the way that Paul ends this letter by identifying for you who God is. He's pointing it out plain as day. Who's the God that we worship? And he's linking grace and love and fellowship with God, with this God. This is what it means to be in the faith. This is what happens when you truly recognize you're a sinner and you start to understand that Christ is a Savior and the only solution to forgiveness. And you start to realize that the cross is where love has its most shocking expression. That 
God that Christ would die for you, a sinner. That the God of all creation would place himself on a cross of suffering, looking at those who put him there and say, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's grace beyond words. That is grace. You see that today? Do you see that today? That's when it starts to have life-changing power. And the opportunity is for you to have fellowship with that God. For Him to become your Savior. For Him to come into your life. Can you give Him your life today? I'm, I'm challenging you to do it. I know you're looking at the screen, but I'm challenging you to do it. That cross purchased for you forgiveness if you will put your faith in the God who got upon it for you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you for this book. Thank you for Paul who wrote it. Lord, thank you most of all for recording it for us, for holding it for us, that 2,000 years later we still have it written here that we can know you better. I pray today if anybody's given their life to you, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes, open their heart, that you would come in them as you've promised, that you'd fill them with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would lead them to a great church or to us even better, that... Uh, we can help lead them to make disciples. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Help us uh, live a life that honors and glorifies what you accomplished on it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.